0: Father God, we just ask that you would fill this place. God, that you would fill this place. We're here for one reason. To meet with you. To hear your truth. To be changed by you. God, only you can do that in our lives. And we beg you this morning, God, that you would move in this place. God, that we would interact with you, that you would tear down walls, heal lives, change lives. God, go before us in this place and the proclamation of your word. Amen. Be seated. Man, that was amazing. I'm a... I can be a bit emotional at times, so I got that out of the way. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Um, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 12 this morning. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn there, Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers is the fourth book in your Bible, and we will be in Numbers chapter 12. If you are a note taker, I want to give you the big idea this morning right off the front. That way you've got it. Uh, You can check that box if that's important to you, and then you can kind of see how that idea weaves through the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So here's the big idea. The big idea this morning is strength is most evident in meekness. Not weakness, but strength is most evident in meekness. Okay, so before we jump into Numbers chapter 12, let me give you guys just a little bit of background about what's going on as we come into Numbers chapter 12. The nation of Israel has left Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have defeated the Egyptian army. They have gone into the wilderness. They have received manna. Uh, They have gone to Mount Sinai, where they have received the Ten Commandments. You guys know the story. There's a golden calf involved, a second set of Ten Commandments. And then as they're there, they complain because they don't have any meat to eat. They receive quail. And that's where we pick up our story. So Numbers chapter 12, in in the scope of the 40 years that they're in the wilderness, is not quite two years in to this process. So it's probably 18 months or so into this journey into the wilderness. After this passage is when they will spy out the land, and then God will say, I'm going to kill off this generation. You guys need to wander for the next uh, 40 years. And so that's where we pick this up. So we're in Numbers chapter 12. If you are ready, say, "Let's let's go. Let's go. Okay, Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, because of the Cushite woman who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. This these two verses introduce for us the entirety of our cast for this story. So we have the Lord, he's a prominent figure in this story. We have Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And what you need to know about them, if you don't, is that they're siblings. Uh, Aaron is actually the oldest, then Miriam, and then Moses. But in God's economy, in God's order here with the nation of Israel, Moses is the top dog. He is a prophet, and he is leading God's people. And then you have Aaron, who is the, the high priest. And then you have Miriam, his sister, who is actually a prophetess in the context of the nation of Israel at this time. So this is our cast for our story. And what we learn quickly from this is that Miriam and Aaron are upset with Moses. And they're frustrated with Moses because he's in a position of power and authority that they think that they should have. And so they set out to publicly attack him and publicly shame him and publicly tear him down. This is a bit of a coup. They want his position of power and authority, we will see as we walk through the text. And so they get together and they say to themselves, what can we do that will help our cause? How can we shame and disqualify Moses? And so the thought here is that they're going to make a couple of accusations. The first one is this. Your past disqualifies you. Your past disqualifies you. That's what they say. They make a charge to all of the people that Moses, in his past, married a Cushite woman. And it doesn't matter that she's Cushite. What's important is that she's not Jewish. That was the problem. Okay, and and I want you to notice something here. This isn't false. Moses had a time in his life that wasn't the best. He had a season of running from God. He had a season of of sin. His past is actually recorded in Exodus chapter 2, and I think you guys probably remember the story. He is an Egyptian prince but he's an Israelite. And so he's walking one day and he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And in a sinful rage, he beats the Egyptian to death. Murdering him, he buries him in the sand. He thinks he gets away with it, but it turns out there's witnesses. And so he's afraid for his life and he runs from his sin into the wilderness. Into the wilderness, he meets some pretty ladies. They're washing their sheep, watching their sheep, not washing, <laughs> watching their sheep, And up comes some shepherds, and apparently he's in the business of beating people up because he chases away these other shepherds. He waters these women's sheep. He goes back home with them, and four hours later, he marries one of them. This is kind of like The Hangover. Has anybody seen the movie The Hangover? And you call yourself a Christian. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I've seen the movie The Hangover, and i repented many times afterwards. If you haven't seen it, don't watch it. I'm pretty sure if you watch it, straight ticket to hell. I mean... I think the earth might actually open you up and you just, you go right straight to hell. So don't watch it. But, but Moses has this, this past and this history that's less than pristine, right? There's, there's, there is a, a season of his life where he's not walking with the Lord and he's made sinful, foolish decisions. And I'm only guessing, but I'm guessing everybody in the room can relate. I know that in my life, There have been seasons of sinful, foolish decisions where I didn't walk with the Lord and I didn't do exactly what he would want me to do. Maybe some of you are in that season today. And whether it was today or it's in your past, you look at that season of your life and there is regret and there is shame and there is guilt. And Satan This is one of his greatest tools. He would love nothing more than to convince you that your past disqualifies you. That's a lie. In light of the gospel, there has never been a statement that's been less true. See, Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned. But the point of the gospel is not your goodness, but the perfection of your Savior. And because of the work that he did on the cross for you, it doesn't matter what your past is, you're not disqualified. You are not disqualified from being used by God. And, and no level of sin, high or low, makes you more or less qualified. We are all equally qualified under the grace of God to be used by God for ministry. If God only used good people... He wouldn't use anyone. Praise God that he uses us in spite of our past. Maybe some others of you this morning can relate a little bit more to Miriam and Aaron. And for whatever reason in your life, you've, you've fallen to a pattern or you've made it a practice to look across the aisle, to look across the cubicle, to look across the driveway and to judge other people. And to look at their sin and somehow see their sin as different than yours. Somehow your sin is less bad or justified. It is a natural tendency for all of us to look at our actions and justify them as being done out of circumstances. Here's what I mean. Well, I did this because they did that. I did this or said this because they said that. You see, my action is a result of circumstances. But at the same time as we rationalize our own actions as circumstantial, we look at other people's actions and we say their action means they're a flawed person. They did that because they're wicked. And we remove the circumstances around their action and we judge that as a wickedness while in our own minds we can excuse what we do as circumstantial. And we all do this to some level. But the reality is... No sin is better or worse in view of a holy God. They are all the same. And God doesn't much like us judging other people like this. And we're going to see that as we go through this text and how he deals with Miriam and Aaron. The second accusation from Miriam and Aaron comes from verse 2. Verse 2 says, "'And they said, "'Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? "'Has he not spoken through us also?' So here's what they're saying. Here's the second accusation. You're nothing special. You're nothing special. We prophesy too. In other words, we are equally gifted and talented as you. And honestly, because of your past sin, we're actually more qualified to lead than you are. This is the attack. And let's be honest. We've all been at this place at some point in our lives, the place of Miriam and Aaron, where we've either in our work or in our church or in our home or in our athletic team, where we've looked at someone else who's been given position and platform and opportunity, and we've said, you're not better than me. You're not more gifted than me or more talented than me. And if I was just given that opportunity, I could excel. In fact, I actually deserve that more than you. I remember at my first job, uh, I guess it was my second job, I was a banker. And there happened to be a gentleman at the bank who, for whatever reason, seemed to constantly get the bonuses and the promotions and the raises and the accolades. And I wrestled with this exact thing. And I kept thinking to myself, he's not, he's not better than me. He doesn't work harder than me. In fact, I work harder than him. And, and I'm, I'm more faithful as an employee. And I, I, I deserve what he's getting. And here's the crazy thing. I became angry towards him. And it wasn't even something he had done. You see that, right? The bank was the one giving him the bonuses and giving him the praise and giving him the raises. And yet somehow I judged him because I wasn't getting what I thought I deserved. And so I became angry with him. And this is what's happening with Miriam and Aaron. Moses didn't ask to be the leader. In fact, he distinctly said, I don't want to be the leader. And God said, you're going to be the leader. And yet their attack is against Moses. I have other stories in other workplaces where I felt the same. Maybe you're in this church this morning and you think you should have been on stage singing. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. But there is probably a space in your life where you look and you say, I deserve that. And you may have some bitterness or frustration with that person. You communicate you're nothing special. Your frustration grows with your bosses, with your parents, with church leadership. And we can become frustrated. So Miriam and Aaron, they've made two accusations against Moses. Right? Your past disqualifies you and you're nothing special. Look back with me at verse three and let's see how Moses responds. Now, the man Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. This verse is a bit of a rabbit trail to me. This is a narrative, which means it's a story. It's a succession of events. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And if you took verse 3 out, the story would read straight through. It appears to be that verse 3 is actually a description of an individual's character quality. Moses is the meekest man on the face of the earth. And it is, in fact, a description of a character quality of Moses, but it is not isolated to a description of his character qualities. It is, in fact, a description of how he responds. Read it like an action. Moses was meek. It's telling us how he responded to this public attack. It's telling us he didn't defend himself, that he acted in a meek way. According to my research, there are only two people in God's word referred to as meek, Moses and Jesus. I mean, that is some amazing company. Anytime you're on a list with Jesus, you've arrived. Moses is the only one considered to be meek. I think in our day and age, we struggle a little bit with the understanding of meekness. It's not a word that we use. And when we do use it, We use it in a context that it's not being used here. So so I want to take just a minute and describe meekness to you. When we think of meekness, we often think of somebody who's a doormat, who's spineless, who's timid, who lets people walk all over them. But our Savior is none of those things. Jesus is not those things. So that can't be the definition of meekness. So let me help you with it a little bit. If we go back to the Greek, in the Greek it has this idea of taming or um, training horses or or wild animals. It's this idea that you take all of this power and strength and capability and might and passion and you control it. And because we're not wild animals, there is a component for us of what I would call self-restraint. It is having the ability or the power within your right and grasp, but choosing not to use it. Further, meekness has this idea of yielding to God's plan. So it is a controlling of the strength that you have and not choosing not to use it, but at the same time, yielding to God's plan. Can I be honest with you? Meekness is really, really hard. Two people ever listed as meek. Meekness is incredibly hard. And and I want to walk through four reasons with you that I think that we as Christians struggle so much to demonstrate meekness. The first one is this. Unfair trial are a prerequisite. Unfair trials are a prerequisite for meekness. Here's what I mean. It is impossible to display meekness unless you are in an unfair trial. You have to be in a situation and a circumstance that is not right, that is unjust, that is not fair. Think about it in the life of Moses. He didn't want to be the leader. God made him the leader. He's serving faithfully. We're, We're 18 months in and the people are making idols and complaining. I mean, his job is hard. He didn't deserve a public attack. He didn't deserve to have his past sin thrown in his face. He didn't deserve to be, to be told that he wasn't special or that he wasn't capable. It's an unwarranted, unfair attack. And then look at the life of Jesus. He's before Pilate. And what happens? People come in, witness after witness, giving false testimony about the things that he said and he did. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It wasn't just. And it is in those moments that we collectively have an opportunity to show meekness. So by definition, if it's an unfair situation, it's hard. That's part of the reason meekness is difficult. The second one is it requires complete trust in God. I know that everyone in this room trusts God. We know Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good. And so we conceptually trust God. Putting your complete trust in God is tough. And here's part of the reason. We serve a God who is just. And because we're created in the image of our God, we have a desire for justice. It's a God-given desire that things would be just and right. But here's the problem. When you're being attacked, and you're being lied about, and you're being shamed, everything you perceive is from your perspective. And, and you may not want to hear this, your perspective is limited, and it's sinful. You're looking through your sinful bias and lens as to how you receive the other person's actions and that other person, and you cannot know the intent of their heart. You are forced to, in our limited capacity, see action, judge motive. And how many times have you naturally judged motive to be the positive? That person was definitely out to help me. No, we don't do that. So we have a sinful, skewed, limited bias. And so in order for real, genuine, God-designed justice to happen, we have to let go. We have to trust that God sees everything and knows everything and will not let sin go undealt with. And it's true, he won't. All sin will be accounted for, either on the cross or at the judgment seat. But it's all accounted for. And so we have to set aside our desire and our perspective and trust that God knows what's best. We must put complete trust in God. Number three, The third reason that meekness is so difficult is that we have a fear of man issue. To varying degrees, everyone in this room cares what other people think. And so most often in a situation where meekness is required, you're being attacked. You're being made fun of, you're being lied about, you're being mistreated, you're being misrepresented. And that fear of man drives you to want to run into the situation and say, that's not true. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I didn't want that. That's being misinterpreted. And we run in there to do that, not to defend the Lord, to defend ourselves. We run in there to defend ourselves. And oftentimes, we take it a step further. We're not just going to Correct the misperception about us, we're going to take a swing at our attacker while we're at it. Not only did I not say that, they said this. And we double down on defending ourselves. If someone ruins your day, or your life for that matter, and you have meekness, listen to this, you won't even get upset. You won't worry about your reputation you will actually only worry about God's reputation. If someone ruins your day or your life, you won't even get upset. You will only worry about God's reputation. That is really high call for us. But you see it in Moses and you see it in Jesus. Two men described as meek. Here's the fourth. The fourth reason that it's so difficult. God's timing is not our timing. Man, I'll tell you what. Todd's not here today, but if Todd were here today and 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 he made fun of me, like, I don't know, during the announcements or something, and you all laughed at me, you know what I would want? I would want for him to try to walk back off the stage, miss a step, trip to the floor, and you all laugh at him. And it just so happened that Jasper's filming it on his phone, and Jasper posts it to the internet, and it goes viral. And underneath it says hashtag you had it coming. That's my idea of the timing that justice should have. Okay, I want justice to be swift. I want it to be severe. I want it to be obvious and evident that it's connected to the attack against me. But here's the thing. Guys, we know that God's timing is perfect. And we know that God's timing is not our timing. And we know that the way and how that he does things is far better than we could. And so, go back to the trust now. If I trust God, I will allow him to deal with this in his timing. Here's here's something that might be slightly frustrating to you. You may never see the justice you think is warranted in this lifetime. You have to be okay with that. You have to be willing to let God's timing be God's timing. I said it before, all sin is accounted for. And your perspective is limited so be careful what you think they deserve. First Peter 5 talks about humbling yourself, and at the right time, God will exalt you. It's not yours to exalt, it's God's to exalt. Okay, so what's going to happen to our two troublemakers? Because Moses isn't going to defend himself, so let's look back at the text and see what happens. Verse 4 and 5, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they came forward. Uh Uh-oh. Dad's mad. I can literally see this happening in my home. My wife Laura and I will be in the kitchen. Lily and Emma will be in the room next door, and there'll be some kind of spat. And it will escalate in its intensity or its volume or its length or whatever. And and, and what will happen is, because I'm dad... It'll be a, and suddenly, and I'll be like, you little sinners, get in here and receive correction. And that's kind of what you see happening. And if you're a parent, you can totally relate. Now, you know, God is a perfect father, unlike me, so the analogy ends very quickly. But the text says, and suddenly, God called them to the tent of meeting. Now, imagine you're Miriam and Aaron. Like, this isn't like when I call my girls to meet. This is the God of the universe who just heard you come after his man publicly. Like, what? (laughs) How afraid are you when you walk out there and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. It's not going to be good. So, God is, he comes down. He's called these misbehaving children to receive some correction. Look back at verse 6. Let's see how he handles them. And he said... Hear my words. Sounds familiar, parents, doesn't it? Listen to me. Pay attention. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision and speak to him in a dream. If there is a prophet among you. In other words, I'm the one who makes prophets. Don't be confused. It's not about you or what you bring to the table. It is about me and how I work through you. You're not a prophet unless I make you a prophet. I think we make a huge mistake when we think to ourselves that we bring something to the table that God needs. God doesn't need us. He is God. But he chooses to use us. Not because of our greatness. In spite of our distinct lack of greatness. God still chooses to use us. We all struggle from time to time at thinking that we bring something to the table. So I have a solution. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you're not that great. You know what? It actually helps if you, if you personalize it. So I want you to say aloud, I'm not that great. And now I know what you're thinking. This guy is so encouraging. I just wish he would preach here more. You guys see that it's not about, it's not about what they brought. God makes prophets. God equips us. And if you have any talent, it's because God gave it to you so you could use it to glorify him. Not elevate yourself. Okay, let's look back at the text. We're going to go to verse 7 and 8. It says, Not so with my servant Moses. God is continuing here. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then will you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Here we go again. This is crazy. Moses is described as the meekest and now the most faithful man on the face of the earth. He's the most meek and faithful man on the face of the earth. Moses is is quite remarkable. Moses, at the end of his life, in Deuteronomy 34, he passes away just before the Israelites go into the promised land, and there are three verses that encapsulate the life of Moses after he passes. It's Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. They're on the screen. It says this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty, mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses was the man. But Moses wasn't concerned about being the man. He was concerned about being God's man. This is what today's church needs. Leaders who are not concerned about being the man, but are concerned about being God's man. Men and women who seek first and only god's glory and not their own you see moses leads an amazing life next to jesus you could argue that he is the the most amazing and influential christian or or person used by god in the bible but get this It's not because Moses knows someone important, or his last name is a certain last name, or he's handsome, or he's capable. In fact, there's a distinct lack of capability within Moses. It's not because of his good looks. It's none of those things that make him a good servant of the Lord. The secret of Moses' ministry is this, meekness and faithfulness. Meekness and faithfulness, it's a joyful submission to God's will even when it's difficult. And it is a faithfulness to God's commands even when no one else is doing them. And you see this in Jesus' life as well. A submission to God's will. We remember the garden. God, if you will. And he submits and he's faithful. That's the key to vibrant ministry. And whether it's in your church here, or it's in your home, or in your workplace, if you're lacking vibrant ministry and you desire more, I will challenge you that you probably need more meekness and faithfulness. And here's the reality we all do. I need more meekness and faithful, faithfulness. And so do you. And these are key components to being used by God. You guys, Moses isn't special, but he's faithful. And God does remarkable things through him. The text says that he's the most meek and faithful man on earth. Jump back to the text with me. Let's see how this plays out as we move ahead. Verse 9 And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh, God, please heal her. Please. Let me deal with something quickly here that I found odd when I first read this text. Why does Miriam get leprosy and Aaron doesn't? Okay, I think I have an answer for you. If you were to go back to the very first verse, it reads, Miriam and Aaron spoke out against Moses. It is the only time in the text that Miriam's name is listed first. There are many of other times that the names are listed together. She's last in the rest of them. I believe that what's happening is that Miriam is actually the ringleader. She's the one whose idea it was to go and do this, and certainly Aaron is part of that, but she seems to be the ringleader. And here's what it's like. I, I grew up with three brothers, and they're all sinful, wicked, terrible people, and I was not. I was a sweet angel. And sometimes I would go along with their sinful, wicked ideas. And my, my parents are here. They're laughing. and um. And my parents would do some... Investigating, and they would find out that my, my wicked brothers had just dragged me along, and they would receive a more severe punishment than me. And if, if you're a parent in the room, you can kind of understand and relate to that. That's the best way I can explain, probably, what's happening to Miriam and, and not to Aaron here. Um, notice that Aaron actually turns to Moses and says, Do not let uh, this, uh, this punishment against us, like he's incorporating himself in that. So, Miriam is leprous, okay? This is a death sentence. In fact, the text says that she is like one whose skin is half eaten when you come out of the womb. Now, that is disgusting, but here's what it's saying. Death is imminent. Death is is a foregone conclusion. It's predetermined. This person is not going to survive. That's what Miriam's situation is. She's going to die. And what happens is Aaron comes to Moses and says, please, please save her. And this is the first and only time Moses speaks in this text. And it's remarkable because what he does is he intercedes on behalf of the person who just attacked him. This person just shamed him publicly and tore him down and told him he wasn't any good. And the thing that he does in response is to pray that the consequence of that attack would be removed. You see it in the life of Jesus. He's on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is meekness on display. This is next level meekness. And God gets the glory. Because it takes a supernatural power In these types of contexts To say with everything you had God you've got this And I don't know about you But when somebody Attacks me and wrongs me And shames me And then they, they They get what's coming to them That's exactly what I think to myself You had this coming And And if I can just be honest with you, there are times that, it, that I smile. Because I'm like, okay, God, this is good. But, but I have to challenge you. Even if you can get to the place where you're not what I just described, where you think to yourself, they had this coming, and there's a tinge of joy, or there's no joy, it doesn't matter, but you think they deserve this. Even if you can get to a place where that's not true. And in your meekness, you say nothing. But in your heart, you hope that justice comes. Then you are not meek. It is not simply keeping your mouth closed. It is a heart disposition towards that person because of how you view God. And I'm a long ways from this. This is why meekness is so exceptionally difficult. Because I'm just telling you guys, I don't spend a lot of time praying for the people that I wish justice would come down upon and asking God in his mercy to remove the consequence of the attack against me. But here's the thing. We're called to this. We are called to this level of of meekness. Galatians 5 lists the fruit of the Spirit and depending on your version of the Bible, it may or may not say meekness, but it's there. We, as we receive the Holy Spirit, one of the outpourings of the Holy Spirit is meekness. It's an evidence that we know Jesus personally. It's a high call. Now you're starting to understand why only two people are mentioned as meek in God's Word. So Moses pleads for the life of Miriam, and God responds. Look back at verses 14 and six, 14 through 16 with me. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had spit, had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days. And the people did not set out on March until Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Okay, notice that there's two things that happen with Miriam's sin. The first is this her sin affects everyone. The text tells us that the entire nation, two million people roughly, wait for her to be brought back into the camp so they can set out on their march. Her sin affects everyone. And the same is true for us. We collectively are the body of Christ. You in this room collectively are Harvest West Olive. Don't be mistaken. Your sin is not private. It affects the entire body of Christ. If the big toe is infected, the whole body is hobbled. Take your sin seriously. It is not yours alone in its effect on God's body. The second consequence is this. Her attack against Moses is public. The consequence of her sin is public. And you see in the text, it talks about if her father had spit in her face. The idea there is that there's shame associated with the father spitting in the daughter's face. But the shame was here. What God is saying is, even if this happened, there would be shame. But what she did was this. So there's going to be shame associated with her sin. And don't think that God is being wicked or mean when he shames Miriam. Sin does have shame. And it is not exclusive. The idea that her sin is public and the consequence is public isn't just so there's shame. There's a secondary purpose. It's so that others might see and learn and not repeat the same action. So that others might see and learn and not repeat the same action. And it's true for us today. I remember... Growing up, I had two younger brothers, one older, and I don't remember where we were, but we were at a place where they had animals, horses or cows or something. And I thought a fence was electrified. And so I convinced one of my younger brothers to touch the fence. It was in fact electrified and it hurt. Now imagine that that event happened and I reached out moments later and touched the fence. You would go, well, that was just foolish. That was stupid. But guys, I think we do this all the time. I think we look around and we see other people whose sin devastate their, devastates their lives and the consequences are real and we see the, the, the devastation of divorce and addiction and pornography and, and whatever. And somehow we think to ourselves, I can dabble in it and I won't get the same consequence. I'm different. I'm special. It won't control me. Why do we do that? Proverbs says that wisdom is on every street corner, screaming out. And if we would look around and we would observe, we could save ourselves a whole lot of pain. After Numbers comes Leviticus, right? Deuteronomy, sorry. If you read through that, what you will see God say over and over to the nation of Israel is that when someone is caught in sin, bring them into a public place and most often they stone them, but, but there's a, what, what I want you to understand is there's a consequence to the sin, and the command is that the, that the consequence be public. And what follows that over and over and over again is this idea that everyone might see and fear the Lord and walk in obedience. Practical application for you today. Whatever your age, find someone 10, 15, 20 years down the road from you And please take them to coffee and ask them what they would do differently and the decisions that they made that were less than fruitful. And if they made good ones, how did they stay there? How did they make those good decisions? How did they get to that place? If we don't learn from other people's sin, we are bound to repeat it and it's going to hurt. God is merciful to the nation of Israel when he shows them the consequence of Miriam's sin. Miriam's sin was a death sentence. But here's the good news. God doesn't leave Miriam there. He restores her, and he redeems her, and he forgives her. And this is true for us today. God is a God of redemption and forgiveness and restoration. And if you are a follower of Christ, you will never receive the wrath of God because it has been poured out on his son, Jesus, at the cross. And it's that truth today that should motivate us to a life of meekness. A life of joy-filled submission to God's will. As I close with this, I want you guys to look at your sheet. We've got four four checks. How do I know if, if I'm growing in my meekness? How do I know if I'm doing anything right in regards to this? Well, I've got four statements I want to walk through with you as we close. The first is this. Ask yourself this question. Do I have concern for God's reputation alone? Is my motivation that God's reputation would be elevated, or is my motivation defending my own reputation? Number two, do I have a desire that others see a consistent Christian attitude and godly testimony? Guys, think about this. If you're in a situation that meekness is required, it means that you're facing something unfair that's not right and you're being attacked. And guess what? Other people will see it. And that is the opportunity to have a testimony. It's in that moment that your walk with the Lord can have the greatest fruitfulness from an outside perspective. Because meekness is a supernatural response. It's not normal. It's God-given. And when you do it, your testimony is vibrant. Number three, do I have a holy boldness and courage? Here's what I mean. If you put your complete trust in God, if you set aside your fear of man, what does that allow you to do? To be bold and courageous because you're not concerned about what people are saying. You're not concerned about defending yourself. You're not concerned about your own reputation. And if you set those things aside, what is there to hinder you? You can be bold and courageous. Finally, a yielding spirit to God's will, even when my circumstances are harder than I think I can handle. A yielding spirit to God's will, even when my circumstances are harder than I think I can handle. My guess is that in this room, All of us have faced unfair trials and situations. And if you're not currently in one, just wait. They're coming. We live, unfortunately, in a sin-cursed world. But I'm asking you guys today to make a plan of action for when that happens. See, here's the thing about being a Christian. We know there's things that will trip us up. It's different for all of us. Things that we know that when we get into that situation and we struggle to do the right thing and make the right decision. And the best plan of action in that context is not to say, I'm going to wait until I'm caught in that moment and hope that I have the willpower to make the right decision. One of the best things that you can do is to set in your heart and mind in advance what you will do to honor God when you know you're going to face something difficult. And so I'm asking you this morning and I'm telling myself Choose today that when you face unfair circumstances, that you will choose meekness. That you will choose a joyful submission to God's will, knowing that he will protect you better than you can ever protect yourself. And when you choose with your actions to demonstrate meekness, you will be elevating the glory of God the reputation of God and not your own. Let's pray. God, what an amazing story. What a remarkable truth that God, we can and you would ask us to put all of our trust in you, to allow you to defend us, to allow you to protect us. God, we know, God, we know that your justice is perfect, that your perspective is perfect. God, ours is sinful, and it's limited, and it's biased. God, to be able to sit silently and let you defend is hard. God, even more so, it is, seems impossible to pray that the people who have come against us, God, would not receive the consequence of that attack but God, you are slow to anger and you are full of mercy. Help us. Help us to be meek. That your glory might be evident in our lives. That we would be more concerned about being people of God, than our own reputation. In Jesus' name, Amen.